Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency, whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious. This week, we're sitting down with Steve Vallis, who is the CEO of Blockchain Australia, and going to be getting some answers to some pretty interesting questions, including why is everyone talking about scams at the moment? We're going to unpack how far behind Australia actually is in the scheme of things. And Steve lets us in on why the US Federal Reserve is so interested in what we're doing. I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and this is Tapping Into Crypto. Welcome to the podcast, Steve Vallis. It is so good to have you here with us today. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. So exciting. Now, Steve, I'm sure so many of our listeners are going to know exactly who you are and what you do in the wonderful world of crypto. But for those that haven't found you yet, can you let us know a little insight into your world? Uh, Yes, I'd start off by apologizing to people who have had to either listen to my voice or see my face on any stages anywhere. For those that haven't, I run Blockchain Australia. It's an industry body. It's the peak industry body for all things blockchain, DLT and cryptocurrency. And uh, the joy of this role is that I get to speak to lots and lots of people in every nook and cranny of this ecosystem and then filter that back to those who are in different nooks and crannies of this ecosystem. So generally sort of connecting the dots for people. Yeah. And talking about all those hard hitting topics and the things that, you know, you get all the range of opinions from everyone in government and policies right across to everyday users and everyone in between. So I know, and I've seen following you for the last few months around the conversations that you've been privy to and been able to facilitate. There's so many insights that I'm so excited to unpack today. But before we dive into that, the question that we ask absolutely everyone to the podcast is what was your very first crypto purchase and do you still have it now? So, funnily enough, this is where I'm boring, Alicia, very little. And the, the simple reason is related to the role. You know, I don't feel like I can speak for lots of people if I am in any way, shape or form compromised. So the reality is I've missed out on a lot of opportunities that were presented on the basis that whilst I'm in this role, I thought it was more appropriate to be able to speak to capability and opportunity uh, without feeling that there's any uh, accusation or otherwise of bias. So uh, not enough as I should have is the uh, is the answer and very little in that regard. But hopefully when I come out of this role, I will, uh, I'll catch up. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And I think it would be so hard watching from the sidelines. And I know for so many people listening as well, when you've heard someone tell you about a project and you see where you could have bought at and then you see where it ends up, it's just soul crushing. So yeah, I feel you on that and hopefully can swing around, especially in the market and the opportunities for buying that we have at the moment. If someone hasn't followed along in your journey, you have had a really interesting career to date. Can you let us know a little bit of an insight into how you moved into the Blockchain Australia role that you're in now? Sure. It's it's a very strange backstory. When I tell people with the benefit of hindsight, it feels like I made these great decisions that started many, many years ago to land here. But it is largely about taking opportunities as they present. You know, my formal qualification was as a lawyer. Uh, I've also been involved in hospitality, property development hospitality, which was a lot of uh, face-to-face interactions with people and getting a sense of, you know, people's place and purpose in, in all sorts of roles. Moved into digital strategy and ultimately management consultant. Now, all those things have allowed me to do the one thing that is the most important in the role that I'm at is I can speak on behalf of lots of people's particular contexts and roles. And I've spoken to people in property, in sport, in government, in education, so that when we're talking about use cases for these products as well, I have a sense of what value they can otherwise bring. So that was a lot of relationships over an extended period of time, which then led to me being exposed to this subject matter probably five or six years ago. 
And the thing I liked about it five or six years ago is it's hard to understand. You really do need to commit the time to get across it. And for that reason, it's often very easy to spot bullshitters in the space. So I sort of thought I like the ability to be able to discern that. So I kept the day job, which was earning a living doing other things as I built out relationships across the ecosystem as a whole. And then accidentally, because the truth is it's not anything I was coveting, I was asked a couple of years ago whether or not I would consider taking on this role. And so it was the natural sort of coming together of a lot of relationships built over a long period of time without an ask, without a sell. I sat out the ICO boom. I was asked many times to do lots of things. And I said, you know what, I, I see value in this ecosystem as it's as it's growing out. So I won't cash in any chips. So when the opportunity came, I thought I'll do my bit. And uh, that's what I've done the last couple of years. And it has been just such a crazy couple of years that we've been on, you know, that we've had listeners and people on the podcast that have been right back in those early stages, you know, 2012, 2013, held on for dear life and got through to now. And then some who are just joining us now and moving through this volatility and moving through, you know, probably a little bit of pain at the moment if they are investing in crypto. But I think the coolest thing that I see you talk about a lot is the tech behind everything. And that tech is something that regardless of the pain that you might be feeling at the moment, that's not going away. That's just getting better and better and even more exciting. And the word industry body is something that so many people will be familiar with, but might not actually understand what that industry body does. So can you help us understand you know, what Blockchain Australia actually does, how it connects the dots, what an industry body means? Sure. And I, I like on the tech end, Alicia, the interesting for me that is there's tribalism. I mean, the thing I love about this space is people love the thing they do. And if they love it, they love it often uh, to the extent that they will troll everyone else on Twitter who doesn't love the thing they do. So, I, you know, I like people's passion and commitment to these projects. So uh, that's where it sort of starts for me. You know, what do they love? Why do they love it? What can it promise and deliver? The, the bit that sits in between that is the, the tech and the application it's a different conversation because the truth is if people are all in on Bitcoin and they're Bitcoin maxi or they're an ETH head, they tend to sort of say it doesn't matter as long as you recognize that Bitcoin is the only thing you should be looking at or ETH or anything else. So that is a sort of subset of conversations. The tech side is people who are agnostic in many respects with respect to what that first part looks like. They just think they can build a better mousetrap. And that conversation is an interesting one. That It's challenging. That's, in my mind, it's just startup land. You know, people say, listen, I've got this idea. Can I execute it? And by the way, this is some of the infrastructure that I'll be using. So that's the second part of the conversation. The third part, which is largely the work that's done within Blockchain Australia, which is the peak industry body, is connecting those two worlds into decision makers, into regulators, into industry. And so that that partnership approach is often absent for technologists. You know, technologists quite rightly know they can change the world. And sometimes the only thing they focus on is they can change the world. And what they forget is sometimes people don't want that world to be changed. And there are lots of steps between the process of here's a thing that makes everything better and here's someone who either buys or implements or deploys these things. So that's kind of the stack. You know, the true believers who are incentivized to participate in this ecosystem, those that build our product, and ultimately the gateway that says none of us go alone. You can think you can operate in a bubble, this is not a country to operate in a bubble. The reality here is you've got to deal with regulators, you've got to deal with lawyers, you've got to deal with all these parts of the ecosystem. And mine has been a role to sort of act as a bit of a wayfinder that says, listen, you might not want to do this. It's a necessary step or often, and I don't I don't oversell what the opportunities look like, I'll say to people it might be the wrong jurisdiction. You know, if you want to move forward and break things quickly and be less worried about the consequences, maybe Australia is not the place to be doing that. So it is just trying to guide people and ultimately save them time. 
And really interesting conversations, particularly around regulation. You've just come back from the States and been to some phenomenal events over there that we've had a few people on the pod have been over as well. But something else that you were doing over there was chatting in Washington about regulation. What are you seeing in this space? Are we keeping up? Are we doing the right things? Like what's happening? It's funny, Alicia. The best conversations, the most interesting conversations happen behind closed doors. I mean, the reality is when people are uncertain about this subject matter, regulators' job is to make sure that things aren't risky. They, they don't want failures. They don't want mistakes. That's what regulators are there to do generally. They're, they're there to guide things through. But if you said to me what's more important most of the time, it's don't let things go wrong in advance of let's make things better. That's just, you know, that's just the mindset, I think, of these sort of conversations. So those conversations locally have been accelerating. What's been easy for me, relatively speaking, in the last six to 12 months is to inform locals and local regulators about what's happening in the rest of the world because we're all kind of choosing our own flavour of regulation. You know, what jurisdiction is the fast-moving one? What's the forward-thinking on? What's the concern? So when people have a frame of reference, it's easier then to make a decision about where we sort of fit. So I think a lot of the initiatives through government and the regulators in the last year or two have signalled more strongly than, say, the previous year or two, that Australia is willing to talk about things like DAOs and decentralised autonomous organisations. We're willing to talk about what licensing looks like. That's a signal. That's literally like shooting up a flare that says business can happen here. And it's important to shoot off the flares in advance of any of these things happening. So that's sort of the Australian ecosystem maturing and maturing enough to be relevant a little bit more on the global stage. Reflected in that trip to Washington, I end up having a meeting with the Federal Reserve. So we go to Washington and think, you know, why would they want to meet us? Except they were happy to meet us. We thought, good, we could think we can add some value there. And I went with uh, Caroline Bowler, who's the CEO of BTC Markets. And we sat there in a room with four representatives of the Federal Reserve. And then we're told there's 10 more that are here. So we had 14 people on the line. That was a great sign for me to say the ecosystem is being given enough respect that on the other side of the world, in a really serious room, when we're talking about the Federal Reserve and what their impact is on global markets, there's a willingness of one of their teams in this space to talk to us about what we're doing in Australia. So I think it's a good sign that these conversations are happening. And sometimes it's easier to get attention outside of your own borders than it is within. So it's a, it's a reflection, I think, that we are coming of age in terms of this conversation globally. Yes. And I think like, you know, the thing with government and policy and all of these regulatory pieces is that they take time, right? Like, you know, everyone's whinging that there's a lot of conversations, there's not much happening. But I think if you look back historically and you look at how long it usually would take for a piece of legislation to move through. You know, that can take years. So the fact that we're seeing some movement, I think, is really positive. But do you think that we will see any progress anytime soon? So it's funny, your point is absolutely spot on. These are slow processes, even when they go as fast as they can. And so, you know, this willingness to sort of push through, you think about the layers of bureaucracy that are involved in doing these things, and much of this has a knock-on. I mean, you can't just change a little bit of the laws relating to financial service regulation without thinking what are the implications for other businesses that might not be this. So everything has this sort of knock-on effect, which is why it takes a long period of time. It's, it's a little bit sort of acronym bingo, but at the moment, ACCC are chatting about this with respect to things like scams in particular and, and how they see the ecosystem developing. And ASIC are also looking at this from the regulation of financial services and uh, and people who should be licensed or not licensed if they're talking about these sorts of products. The ATO is looking at it in terms of a review of what the implications might be for things like capital gains tax. And we've got Austrac who are responsible for know your customer, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorism, for all the serious things that are pay attention to where the money goes and does it go. 
they're all talking. I mean, this is the challenge. What they don't do is give you the running update that says we've moved a little bit forward and a little bit forward and a little bit forward. But it is happening. It's happening behind closed doors. What you can see internationally, you look at something like in the EU at the moment, there is the marketing crypto assets is is the name of the thing, MICA. That is a multi-year strategy to roll out a regulatory framework, which when it comes together, will apply to the whole of the EU. So the reason it's slow is a lot of countries in the EU, a lot of very different countries in the EU. How can you possibly legislate for all of these countries? The answer is you do it slowly, you do it with a lot of conversations. But when it snaps together, it's kind of done. So in anticipation that we all would hope it would happen faster, but that's not how this works. And just because, again, you know, we are incentivized. The truth is as many people as are incentivized to move this ecosystem forward, there are many people that don't know it, don't like it, don't trust it, who will offer up resistance to that happening. So you've got to you've got to expect that it's not a linear path for us. You know, there are twists and turns in this next few years, but I'm hopeful that the industry won't be crushed and Australia will become and remain relevant. The bigger risk for me is not that we have regulation or don't have regulation, is in that intervening period, people just decide Australia is not a great place to do business and pack up and leave. That would be a shame. Yeah. And have you seen more resistance or I guess even the sentiment change? You know, we've seen some pretty crazy things happen this year with Luna and Celsius and and a few other companies doing some very interesting things. Has that changed since those things have happened? Yeah, the reality here is, you know, a retail focus, the focus it is the average person investing in these things and losing money is of concern. It's always been of concern, but, you know, whilst the market's going up and, and everyone thinks, you know, they're making great investment decisions, it's fine. But when the market goes down and people lose money, and then the question becomes invariably, well, who was there to help me not lose money? No one says who was there to help me make money, but they do say who was there to stop me from losing money. And that then turns the focus back onto regulators and government. So then government doesn't want to be in a position where they're having this conversation. So absolutely, in recent times, with Luna and Celsius and a few of these failures, it begs the question, well, I had money there, why didn't you stop me? And so that is sort of draws in the regulatory conversation. So again, it's a bit of a push-pull that says, are you self-sovereign, able to move forward, able to take on the risk yourself and deliver the consequences? You go, yes, unless I lose money in which case someone should have stopped me. And so that's something that is a bit of a push-pull. The sentiment's changed, but fundamentally hasn't changed from the perspective, as I see it, all the good actors in the ecosystem, people aren't there to defraud you. They're there to build product. And some of these products go up and down. So, you know, that's uh, not anything that has changed the way the industry is growing, but those rises and falls in people's investments, particularly speculative ones they've made, clearly draw in regulatory conversations, and those conversations unsurprisingly focus on you know, the often characterized as you know, mum and dad investors who didn't know better. So that's definitely something that's on the radar, but not anything that is not known to the ecosystem. And I think if people haven't seen, you did a post on the ACCC's report around scams and like, you know, the fact that scams have existed for a very long time and, you know, everyone is looking for someone to blame right now and everyone is looking for a finger to point. As you mentioned, you know, it was so funny, six, 12 months ago, had we been having this conversation, the conversations around regulation were kind of almost like, oh, do we really want this? Is this a good thing? Whereas now, as you say, everyone's like, oh, hang on. No, there should be something here to protect me, to protect me from the scams, protect me from losing money. If someone hasn't seen your post, can you share your, your views on on scams in the crypto industry? Yeah. And what's one of the challenges that we face in the industry, but it's also, it's the challenges faced by government and, and those in between. The word scam in, in our ecosystem is used very casually, right? Everything's a scam. If you're not making money, it's a scam. And and that means everything fits in on that basis. If someone is stealing from you, it's a scam. If you didn't get the return you wanted, it's a scam. If the token didn't go up, it's a scam. 
And so that language has become ubiquitous. But when you look at that language from the perspective of the kinds of things that are being reported, there are two very different parts of that ecosystem. In my mind, when I say scams, I think of romance scams, phishing scams, digital identity scams, tech scams. They're scams. And the reality is, I don't know how many messages you've had today, Alicia. I've already had, I think, three messages that have been flagged as spam and scammy on my phone. They're just scams. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing at the moment is taking advantage of language around this space or a misunderstanding or the FOMO to steal money from you. That's a terrible scourge on everything and our industry. And everyone should do what they can to sort of stop that. On the other side is a much more narrowly defined conversation around scams. Failed projects are failed projects. So I'll distinguish like startups, for example. No one walks into a startup room and says, all these businesses that will happily uh, chant fail fast, they fail and you go, you're a scammer. You're, you're an AI scammer. You're a cybersecurity. They're just businesses that weren't executed well. So you know, failing businesses are to be expected in a growing ecosystem. They shouldn't be conflated with the other side of the scams. And then there are projects that have failed because of bad actors. They're such a small subset of our ecosystem, but you can't tell when you when you go across that whole divide, that language means that everyone's drawn in. The people who are actually thieves are drawn in. Those who have failed businesses who don't see any benefit out of it and ultimately have to move back on and bad actors. Those things when put together allow people to say in a generalized sense, scam. But it's a very different thing. My question is always, what kind of scammer? Is this someone who's within the industry? And by the way, isn't that incumbent on regulators then? If someone has raised money they shouldn't have, the burden sort of shifts as well. You know, as an industry, you sort of say, well, if someone's raised money in a way they shouldn't have in plain sight and it's X amount of dollars, shouldn't someone have identified that as something they could do as well? So it's it's kind of making sure that no one wears all the blame, but we all wear the blame that says there are things we can all do, but the language is is problematic. It is. And it's something that, you know, the media love jumping on as well. And we see that all the time. You know, it's great clickbait. It's good articles, it's good headlines. Nobody, you know, wants to read about a project that failed, but God, they'd love to read about someone scamming them and losing all their money. So it is something that, again, you just got to be mindful of where you're getting this information. You touched on before Australia being a good place or not a good place to do business. Where do we sit at the moment and how are people kind of thinking about us as a place to conduct cryptocurrency activities or blockchain activities? So importantly, I think at the moment they are thinking about us. It's that actual language. The reality is if I went back in a couple of years and the question is, what are people thinking about us? I would have been honest and said, I don't think they are. I think now they are. And sort of reflected a month or two back, sort of delivered blockchain week which was a, a massive undertaking with, I think, 250 or 280 speakers across five days. I spoke to a lot of international businesses. If you look at the lineup of speakers, people participated because they thought we were relevant. The reality is no one needs to go to any more conferences and events. The reality, most of the time, we're all overwhelmed by videos we should catch up on. But I had direct conversations with businesses that were very significant, multi-billion dollar businesses in other jurisdictions. And again, no reason to wake up at an odd time in North America to participate here unless you think it's relevant to sort of do so. So that was kind of reflected in who participated. And we had you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and we had Crypto.com, we had Hedera, Algorand, all the CEOs, you know, and then from the layer one and layer two sort of stuff, we had Ethereum, Dev Core contributors, all sorts of people who are doing incredibly interesting things. And they volunteered their time because they think we are relevant. So that's what I pointed to, just to say right now, you know, we are being characterized and viewed as being strategically important. But it's very fluid, Alicia. The, the challenge here is uh, as much as you can drift into a conversation and be, you know, top 10, no one thinks of us as the most innovative. At the moment, we're in the mix of the conversations. But all it takes is 
six months, 12 months of sitting on our hands going, let's just, let's sit this bit out before you slide off the back here. So right now I'd say we are relevant and it's probably reflected, again, this is pressure for Australian businesses, international businesses, because they view us as strategically important, are investing, which means they're coming after market share. So it's kind of this challenge that is, we say we want to be on a global stage and this is the challenge for government. You can say that's the case, but if you restrain local businesses from participating on a global stage, but global businesses have deep enough pockets to participate locally, then effectively what you're doing is you're running the risk that we become a second-class citizen when it comes to this ecosystem because those bigger businesses that understand what it is to be a global business will have an unnatural advantage or an unfair advantage in coming to the ecosystem. So again, it it keeps people on their toes. But uh, right now I say we're we're in the mix, reflected in you know the US and the people that are willing to chat. But things change, change quickly and complacency is not something that sits well in this ecosystem. And I think that hesitancy and that that thinking around, you know, perhaps pausing for a second because things are volatile, that could really, really hurt us, as you've just mentioned there. I think the other thing that I'd be really curious to know is like of those jurisdictions that are innovating and they are leading the way, what are they doing that we're not? What do we need to do to keep up? So most obviously for us in the region, Singapore is is often cited as a jurisdiction that is friendlier and more open to this conversation. And part of that is the fact that they signal that they are open and friendly. You know, they're, they're saying to people, we are moving towards a process of registration and licensing. So effectively, queue up, let us know you're coming to do this. And you've got the regulators that are proactively drawing in these conversations. And it's funnily enough, sort of consistent with what people do within the ecosystem itself. It's saying, let's have a hackathon. Let's bring talent forward. You know, let's have these events. It's just the question who's asking that, is sort of asking that question is important. From a government perspective, and we did this a couple of years ago through the Department of Industry, we gave this subject matter a home within government. And so that drew in conversations and interest. So Singapore is definitely doing that at the moment. At the opposite ends of the spectrum, we've got, as I mentioned, MICA, very complicated, slow-moving, very regulatory heavy. I mean, the EU tends to regulate things in a different way to the US. They focus on stopping problems much more than the US tries to support and grow innovative businesses and ultimately, you know, flex its economic might. So you've got the EU moving slowly, but in a measured way. The US is a very interesting beast because it's so fragmented in the way these jurisdictions play out within the US as well. You've got You've got states like Wyoming who are very forward thinking. I think recently Miami and Texas are doing some things in Bitcoin mining in Texas. New York ebbs and flows. It's a financial capital, but they also have some issues with, uh, I think, the licensing regime. There's a natural, it's kind of sibling rivalry within the US. That means someone is going to try to outdo someone else. But when they start establishing economic outcomes, people start to pile in. So the US doesn't need to get it all right in order to win at this game. It's kind of when they get at 40% right, it's the US. Money will flow there. So you've got these geopolitical things. And I haven't mentioned, but it's important to note China. I mean, China is doing very interesting things in the rollout of infrastructure, particularly with respect to central bank digital currencies, where they don't have as much of a challenge as you do in a jurisdiction like Australia, where you say, you know, what is the implications from a privacy perspective? They're just saying, let's just build the thing that is in the national interest. So they just go ahead and do this. So you've got them kind of running their own race and interesting to watch them ban Bitcoin on the one hand and then run the biggest central bank digital currency experiment that the world has seen to this point in time. So there are all these geopolitical things at play. And the reason why I find it so fascinating is banning the subject matter is not a solution because money will flow elsewhere. And because this is digital money, digital value, 
the risk is if someone just says, you know what, we're going to stop it, well, water tends to find a way. So so smart people will go to friendlier jurisdictions. Money will flow. So we know that governments around the world, as much as they worry about some things, they also want to maintain their economic strength. And that's one of, again, the natural sort of competitive tensions that this ecosystem brings is if you can't establish and maintain talent that develops digital assets and digital value, it'll just move. And so it keeps people honest when it comes to how they uh, are perceived in this space or how they seek to be perceived. Yeah, since COVID, you know, the world is a lot smaller. Like, it's not hard to, to up and move and work remotely and have teams all across the globe. So, you know, there is that, I guess, opportunity that comes with that as well. You touched on digital currencies. Do you think that a government backing something like that, do you think that builds trust and rapport and lets them let their guard down a little around cryptocurrency and blockchain? On the retail side, I don't think people care. The reality right now is, you know, your appreciation, the average person's appreciation for money is it's on a card somewhere, I tap it and I go, they don't really care what facilitates that that conversation. The things that should be of interest to people and often aren't is what are the privacy implications of that in the government's hands as well as in, in private hands? People don't ask that question. It's an extraordinary thing for me that people just got to go, there's the money, we're okay. So those questions aren't being asked. The tech is pushing people and government towards it. We're basically a cashless society now if we want to be. You know, you can't go into a bank and take out more than $10,000 without telling them why you're going to do it. And so the reality is we've moved down that path. There's a conversation happening globally, and this is, again, one that is under the radar in many respects. People aren't giving it consideration. But the questions around things like unhosted wallets, which are really important to people who are in the space who who self-custody, is what right do governments have to look at, participate in, or KYC your own hosted wallet, and that's playing out at the moment. You know, should should it be the case that no matter what amount of money you have or asset you have in a wallet, it should be KYC. You can't use it in an exchange or for a transaction. They're very fundamental questions about you know what we should or shouldn't have to disclose, and they're conversations that are kind of playing out, probably not as visibly as they should. But uh, right now, for most people, they don't appreciate the implication of this turning into a digital currency. And the truth is, the thing that most people will care about, and this is my previous life doing digital strategy marketing is what's the UX? Is it easy to use and is it convenient? Because if the price of that is I hand over a lot of my own information, people have a tendency to press that button and subscribe or press that button and agree to terms and conditions without actually realizing what it is they're handing off. Yeah. And we say that, like, you know, you've mentioned terms and conditions. I don't think there are many times that I've actually sat down and read terms and conditions for an app update or something like that. And, you know, it is scary when you do actually sit down and you read and you see what sort of data is being collected. You hear so many voices. Are many of them concerned about those privacy implications? The people who are concerned about privacy are concerned about privacy. That, that, that's the truth. Like, it is a subset. It's not something that people give appropriate consideration to. Like, it surprises me because I know, you know, when I used to do a lot of work around Facebook stuff and social and, and Twitter and the like, one of the questions I asked years ago was who logs out of Facebook? And the answer was always the same. One person would actually log out. You go, not who shuts down, who logs out? And then you, I would ask the question, you realize if you don't log out, it follows you around the internet. You know, you are still logged in. It tracks you through cookies or other, and other processes through the internet. And people are like, yeah, I get it. And you go, is that not bothering you? And the answer was no. So it's not unusual that then when you talk about this side of it as well, particularly when you talk about, you know, financial institutions and government, you just stay logged in. It just doesn't bother you. But it is something that people should consciously sort of dive into. To your point, the technology here makes that option an actual option. So when we're talking about things like zero knowledge proofs and we say, look, I don't need to provide you information. All I need to do to do is satisfy through this technology that I'm a human being and that's all you need to know. You don't need to know what age I am, how I identify. You don't need to know what my income is. You just need to know I'm real 
that technology part was one of the things that enticed me into this space in the first place because I thought I like the idea of not handing over every single bit about myself in order to be approved for a rental agreement or in order to be able to you know, get some help desk support for a telephone inquiry. I love that bit. That's slow to move. I think it will be a byproduct of this technology maturing though is ultimately they'll say, are you who you say you are? And I'll go, yes, and press a button and that'll be enough. So that, that's a world I would like to live in and we seem to be some distance from that at the moment. Yeah. And do you think we'll lose that? Like with this regulatory pressure, with governments becoming more invested and more involved and really wanting to, you know, be part of this as well, do you think we'll lose that special functionality of this? I think people will be asked to form a view and then that view will translate into what they do. So it's kind of, you can't complain about what you get. If if you're offered the opportunity to comment about it, you choose not to. So it's kind of, it is a very political sort of thing in that regard. If this isn't important, then don't say anything. And if you if you don't say anything and you think it's important, then you can't really complain later on. As I when people say you get the government you voted for or don't vote for, it's the same basic principle. And we're seeing it play in, in this space as well. When you think about how much of the conversation shifts to things like governance tokens and DAOs, it's amazing what percentage of people, almost all, don't vote. So it's still the case that you say, here you are, this DAO affords you an opportunity to participate, opt in. And in the end, people don't opt in. A small subset of people who are more commercially invested or incentivized will take the time to do it. And everyone else will just say, it doesn't really matter. So it's kind of this conundrum that is you can't always be leading people into what's you know in their best interest because the truth is who's to say, I don't seek to impose my best interest on others. It's kind of just, is it an educated view and how do you move forward? But we're seeing some of the worlds collide in that respect. There is apathy with respect to some of these you know, big issues and they exist as well in our space. Even though we say this gives us the right to exercise, often people say, well, I've got the right, but I'm going to choose not to exercise it anyway. Yeah, which just blows my mind because, you know, it's the reason that you joined for some of them in the first place, which, yeah, it is wild that that's happening. Before we move off regulatory stances and projects in that space, you know, we've seen the Senate recommendations. We've seen the the Treasury consultation paper came out a little bit earlier as well. With all the voices, again, that you're hearing and privy to, do you think that those changes and recommendations, if they get adopted, are they enough? There's a particular challenge in this space, and that is the characterization of these products. So people often listen to what's happening in the US and think it applies to Australia. It really doesn't. You know, the people hear securities. Is it a security? How should we don't really have it's not the same legislation here in Australia. The question is, is it a financial product? And if it's a financial product, there's all sorts of obligations that flow from it being categorized as a financial product product. Most of the things that you use, if there is a more traditional financial product that you invest in, someone has to give you disclosure information, someone needs to be licensed to provide you advice, all these things flow. This space remains undefined in many respects. And contrary to popular belief, it's not because the industry has not defined it, it's because it doesn't fit into a traditional definition. So we're kind of asking proactively to say, well, where do we fit? So those kind of conversations will determine very quickly whether or not the ecosystem locally and internationally grows. Because if it's a financial product, it is more onerous, obviously. And then, you know, the point here is don't treat things that aren't financial products as financial products, because then all you're doing is creating a regulatory requirement that isn't really appropriate. They're difficult conversations to have on the show. And this is, this is where everything has sort of moved slow and everyone's been kind of hands off. So that's a fundamental question that's yet to be addressed. And all of these conversations are guiding us towards an answer to that. And if the answer is it's a financial product, as I said, existing regime, But the answer might be, and this is where a lot of time is going, it's not a financial product, but we think we should regulate it in a particular way anyway. So you're asking people to create sort of duplication in the way they're looking at this space. That's also challenging and time-consuming. 
the difficulty again for countries is you can't sit on your hands. And if you move too quickly, then you might make decisions that you come to rue. So th- that's why there's natural sort of hesitation here. And people say, why can't you just move forward? The answer is, what is your view when you know there are many other jurisdictions around the world that are yet to form their own? So we're kind of inching forward collectively. No one's really making that decision. You see some forward-thinking jurisdictions or some jurisdictions that are traditionally viewed as safe havens or you know tax havens who are able to say, because it suits their ultimate sort of business aim as a, as a, as a nation, to say, yes, we, we'll happily be the home here. That's not necessarily a good guide for Australia. Australia will look to similar jurisdictions like the UK, which has a similar legal structure. They go, what are they doing? What are we doing? And sort of compare and contrast and sort of move forward in a more measured way. So nothing but a lot of conversations. They're boring for most people. I just sort of recognise that you've got to get through this mire to ultimately say, you should do business here. You can do business here. Here are the sort of incentives for doing it. And it, there's just no shortcut for this at the moment. And if people suggest a shortcut, the truth is, you know, the shortcut won't work because no one's going to put at risk all the things that they've done and lots of people's hard-earned savings in order to, just in case, have a uh, have a good outcome financially or economically. So it's just a measured process that people are going through. And I think even like, you know, once you do draw that line in the sand, that's drawn, right? Like, you know, of course you can go and change it, but it it is that then again, you've spent all of this time and all of this money, all of these resources drawing that line in the first place. And I think, you know, we've even seen some interesting ramifications already, particularly around tax and capital gains. And we've seen some horrific stories come out of the way that that's structured. And I think, you know, there is, as you're saying, you know, it's frustrating and I would love it to just be all a very clear picture, black and white, not this gray that we're living in. But I do think there's, again, you know, so much risk to doing that and doing it too quickly because the market's changed so much. If we did something last year, the consequences now would be completely different. And that knock on, I mean, the tax one is a very good example because the ecosystem industry will say generally, well, there shouldn't be capital gains tax on this. And you can make a very good case as to why there shouldn't. But then you've got a lot of industry to say, you're right, well, there should be capital gains tax on us either. So you can't do this in a bubble. So then the question becomes, well, is it just when you're on an on-ramp and an off-ramp, maybe you get taxed there? Or you know, should these crypto-to-crypto um, transactions be subject to it? And what if it's wrapped ETH and ETH? You know, all these things, there are complexities that you're asking your tax department that's not naturally given consideration to these very small variations in the way this product is either marketed or how, and how it actually go. And, and where is this smart contract step that is not visible. You know, does it happen every time a smart contract sort of trades one for the other and jumps in there? Should it be there? And then they're very difficult questions in a world which is ultimately largely sort of very binary in the way it views things. You buy a house and sell a house as a tax event, it's pretty easy to identify, right? You know, you buy an asset generally viewed as familiar and sell it, you get it. But here we say, well, hold on, we just wrapped it, we just staked it, we've just collateralized it, we've just used it. You know, which one of those things is not a taxable event? they have to work that through. So on that side, we sort of recognize that they're difficult enough questions for the ecosystem to address when you have then again all these other implications that everyone else saying, well, why would you treat it any differently to the way you've treated any other asset class? So that's a process that's being worked through at the moment. And uh, it's happening too. The Board of Taxation, which is not the ATO, the Board of Taxation is running a review at the moment and starting a review that, that starts to look at the implications of this and will make recommendations ultimately to government about where this is at. But uh, that process, you'll be surprised to hear, will probably take a while. (laughs) No surprise at all. And especially when you then bring in like the whole world of NFTs and DeFi, like that is just a whole new rabbit hole to go down. But we'll get there. Like we have to get there. 
I'd love to discuss some of the exciting things that you have seen. You know, you've been around the world talking to people, seeing incredible things that are happening in Australia as well. What are some of the projects or the tech or the advancements that you've seen that are really, really moving in this space? So for me, uh, I like scaling solution stuff. You know, the reality is I like things that are going to replace existing infrastructure. The boring part versus watching number go up and down doesn't interest me as much as people who are building infrastructure and scaling stuff. Within Australia, something like Immutable X, you know, the reality there is they're trying to build a very significant scaling solution for NFTs and digital assets in general. They're also incorporating things like Starkware, which is extraordinarily interesting sort of tech. I, I like that building blocks part of the ecosystem. The reality of Things like consultants, you know, I deal with a lot of consultants. Having, you know, been a lawyer a long, long time ago, I recognize what that business model is. It's just not as interesting as people who have got their head down in a coding and looking to build things. So that's the part that interests me is someone's got an idea. They're looking to execute that idea. And at the moment, I think things related to uh, infrastructure work because they're sustainable. Uh, Payments, the reality here of payment systems is payment systems are in Australia pretty good compared to the rest of the world, but still can be made much better by the kind of technology we're looking at here. And I like digital value being created by people in real time. I I like people flipping JPEGs and in the sense that the reality there is who's to tell a 20-year-old what is valuable? I, I love the fact that people my age will invariably say, well, this is all rubbish. What do I care? You go, well, the same stupid shit that 50-year-olds like me collect is not going to be of interest to what 20-year-olds collect. So I like these markets being created out of thin air and I like what comes from it. People are too quick to offer views about what a thing is. Like if you talk to the founders of Google about Google about four months after that started, you would have said they're idiots, they're never going to achieve anything and what the hell they know, what do I care what the internet tells me? And then you flash forward and everyone's a genius because they recognize that Google became this thing that dominated the world. I see the same thing coming out of NFT projects and infrastructure projects. At first instance, you go, well, it can't and doesn't feel like a thing. I like people proving others wrong by building our products that become immeasurably valuable. I, I remember the, the Facebook stuff. I remember saying to people, this thing will change everything. Everyone said, don't be stupid. It's not really, it's not advertising. What do I care you know, about the image you're sort of sharing? And somewhere between this is not media, this is not advertising, you get this monster that now is accused of in many instances, you know, can affect elections around the world. You go, so who was wrong? Because the answer is almost everybody. No one thought sharing the image and liking and commenting could ultimately sway uh, an electoral result in the United States of America for us. Ago, it happened. So we're pretty bad judges until we have the benefit of a rear vision mirror. So I like watching people build things more than uh, more than anything else. Steve, you did mention at the start of the podcast and alluded to stepping down in your role. Have you thought about what's next for you? Uh, I have done something which most people think is idiotic, Alicia. I- I've you know, resigned because I think I've done my bit. You know, the, the nature of the role was probably two years ago, I was hoping to have a bit of an impact on this. And I, I'm comfortable. I've, I've done my best and I've had an impact in some areas. So I did the unthinkable. I surprised everyone and said, whilst everything's going well, I might just uh, see myself out. So that's what I've done. Uh, the answer about what I do is, uh, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm okay with uncertainty. And the role for me has uh, created so many great relationships. There's no role I'm going to. This is one of the things that people have found odd. You don't usually quit a really good job to go to nothing, but that's the kind of idiot I am. So at this stage, I've uh, I've done that. I'll come out. I think I'll just hang up a shingle and see if I can offer some advice to people. But the answer is, I don't know what's next, which is fine by me. How exciting though, in the world of opportunity and so many different avenues you could go down and like an incredible way that you've left Blockchain Australia for other people to come into as well and keep innovating. So I I do really love and, and appreciate and respect that as well. 
Steve, you've shared so much with us, and I think probably for a lot of people, really broken down this regulation piece in particular to something that they kind of understand why it's taking so long. Like, you know, the frustrations that we all feel, you kind of get it a little bit more. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or share with our listeners? Just the important part of it's probably now a consistent theme for me coming out of this role. Most people, in telling them about what you want to do and what you think, you fail to appreciate other people's context enough. I mean, the thing that moves people in these rooms is you understanding the impact for them. So, you know, when you like this space or love this space or have a project or believe in a particular token or product, the important part is not you just saying, here's why it's good. The important part is to understand why on the other side, it might be a challenge or it might not be viewed the same way. And really importantly, don't take it personally. I mean, the reality here is for the longest time, if I if I was worried about convincing every single person I spoke to about all the things I think, I wouldn't have got past the first five conversations. It's Here's my view. This is the information that I think supports that view. Make your own decisions. I'm very much a do your own research, make your own decisions, own your own outcomes kind of person. So it's that. Just understand other people's context a little bit more. And if people don't want to move with you, then that's okay. Just move on to the next conversation. Yes, I love that. And any advice for people that are, I guess, you know, feeling the doom and gloom or feeling the hard hit of the market the way it is at the moment? Yeah, an interesting thing for me whilst I was away in the United States, and the United States has a lot of problems. And the interesting thing to observe was they're dealing with actual problems. Coming back to Australia, I found us talking about things that might be problems much more than I'm talking about problems. So it's very hard once you're in that cycle of negativity and challenge to see anything outside of that. And it goes back to, you know, you are the company you keep. The reality of these things is most of the time we make big assumptions about what's going to happen and we fail to reflect on the fact that we're probably wrong most of the time. So there is no upside from being in a doom and gloom sort of mindset, largely, because either you are in the doom and gloom and you're not going to be happy or things will change, in which case you just wasted your time. So from my perspective, just keep moving. Momentum is the hardest thing to get and the easiest thing to lose. So if you build up some momentum, it's just continuing to sort of move forward. That's the only uh, the only thing that gets you gets you past these things. Yeah, one foot in front of the other, definitely. We'll pop that in the show notes. But is there anywhere else that people can connect with you and follow along? Twitter, Alicia. I love the fire hose that is Twitter. You know, toxic as many people think it is, I love it. So I'm on Twitter, and I think it's an invaluable source for people. That those that don't like Twitter don't realize what they're missing out on as a news source, if nothing else. So even if you're just going to creep on things utilize it, but uh, no, people can come at me on Twitter. It's just at Steve Vallis. Perfect. We'll pop that in the show notes as well. And you heard it, guys. Go come at Steve Vallis. So good, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been epic having you on and we will talk to you very soon. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 